Hey there, welcome to Better Talks, the podcast, in which we talk to friends from the development community. I am Rick. And I am Oscar. Oscar, how have you been, man? What are you, what are you up to? Uh, like always, up to multiple things, but somehow, um, previous weekend, I uh, sniped myself um, <laughs> again. Um, was writing an extension all weekend, or well, at least in the hours that no one else interrupted me. <laughs> Nighttime. I was busy in something like we. Uh, I've been working with a team that's doing a lot of uh, playwright testing at the moment. Yep. And they are rebuilding also the old stuff they had, and it works so well that we we are doing a lot more integration test suites than we are uh, doing other types of tests because mm-hmm. it's just performant and we actually do an end to end. But that means we have a lot of test results in the morning to look at, and uh, they're getting less flaky uh, with the use of these technologies. But uh, still, you want to instantly know what is wrong. And yeah. I don't know if you know the all the, the the options to look at your test results in mm-hmm. DevOps. And there are some extensions, and there are some uh, dashboard plugins and, and widgets, or what are they called? Uh, but basically, the information in the runs tab I always loved. Yeah. But they're like completely unorganized. So I was like, well, let's look at their naming, looks at the build pipelines that run them, and let's build something that just shows the progress of the past seven days on or off per test suite. So if you have your naming right, uh, it's one button click and you have a screen and it's full of of charge. And uh, yeah, if the last uh, one isn't red, Then you're doing something good. Um, so you build that as a Azure DevOps extension, right? Yeah, yeah. It's still uh, I didn't uh, make it public yet, but probably uh, by the time this uh, this thing is, there's always some uh, some some edges uh, to to still polish on of those course, things. But uh, I want to do something with favorites and stuff because it, if you do a lot of unit tests, they also show up, and that's just one big sea of green stuff. Because otherwise, your build <laughs> won't even <laughs> go. True. Um, so I'm gonna check out how to organize that a bit better. Um, but but again, like it was fun to do. Like I, I build a few. So uh, you grab your source, you get the latest libraries and stuff, and uh, look if uh, yeah everything is documented, and then um, work around that. <laughs> and then one of the hardest things in software development: did you come up with a name yet? Uh, it has a name, but like uh, it's, I don't even know. It's something with test and, and dashboard <laughs> and, or something. And view probably. thing. <laughs> okay, um, but the, the biggest uh, uh, snipe always is getting the uh, or the, the time suck is getting the some of the CSS right because we're mostly working <laughs> in backend and not really good at that. And then getting some kind of PNG that represents your your extension. Yep. Yeah, that's also. Um, kind of a, <laughs> a, a job on its own to be good at that. Oh, like, oh I, it definitely I am is. <laughs> it definitely is. And that's the cool thing that you can easily see which extensions were actually built by developers and maybe not an entire team. Yeah, because, yeah but it's yeah. fun to, to build something that's really for yourself because you're also, like, you're just dogfooding that. Like, this is good for me. Yeah. And if anyone else likes it, use it. So um, I will uh, send the link somewhere, like once it's uh, public. Oh, we could put it in the in the episode description if it's available uh, once oh, this episode Oh, that's good. And then I have some kind of a deadline. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and this is going to be the next episode, right? So, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> but who's our friend of the day? Our friend of the day is Aaron Stahl. Aaron Stahl is an Azure architect and DevOps consultant working for Xperit in the Netherlands helping companies deliver their software to customers using DevOps practices and cloud-native architectures is what he loves to do. 
He believes in the power of both the monolith and microservices and prefers to run his workload on the Azure cloud and or Kubernetes. Besides the work he does for the customers of Xperit, he has a passion for sharing knowledge. He is one of the authors of Azure Infrastructure as Code, occasionally writes a blog, and is an international speaker at conferences. Welcome, Erwin. Welcome. Oh, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's so good to have you on because, I mean, the, the, the community is relatively small in the Netherlands, and I think your name pops up quite a few times. Um, so that means that you actually do a lot of things like uh, your bio already ra- reads, uh, you write blogs, and you speak at conferences. Is that something that you do f- with a with a certain passion, or is it something that you think you need to do? What what drives you in uh, being an active participant of the community? Uh, it's 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 definitely a passion. Um, I, I like to share knowledge and also talk with others about the things that I've built and and learn from them as well. I mean, I can do something in a particular way and then share something about it, either on stage or in a blog. And then I always hear back from people how they have done the same thing or at least achieved the same goal, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And then I always also learn from from that. So I really, really like to share knowledge and, and, and be on stage and, and, um, and, and, and do some sharing there. And But one of the other reasons that also went into public speaking is that I also just like to to travel and to see a bit of the world. And um, so I can combine the passion for sharing knowledge with doing a bit of traveling uh, through public speaking. Ah, I can understand that one. Um, I think it was December, right, uh, Oscar, when we went to Serbia for a, for a conference together. Yeah, we uh, we had a small uh, fun trip, and we could also <laughs> speak somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, but but I know what what you're saying is actually you started with it's a passion, and I think you can't keep up with this if it's not uh, intrinsically motivated. No, no, definitely. If 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 I look at my past few weeks, uh, then I've been extremely busy with uh, uh, preparing a new talk. Um, that there's going to be a magazine coming out soon that I wrote an article for. Um, so all these sharing knowledge things, they do, they do take a lot of time, especially in the evenings. Um, since I also just have a normal day job, um, <laughs> and all of these things take a lot, a lot of time. And I, I honestly believe that you can only do that if you really like it. Otherwise it's just gonna be something that you have to do. And I, I think that once you start doing these things, because you think you have to, you probably better stop. Well, I think that's maybe even the same as what well, I'm. <laughs> I know Oscar is going, going to laugh about this, but we are currently remodeling our house um, for two years now since we bought a house, and there was a lot that we needed to do. Oh, I was thinking, do you have another one now? <laughs> but, <laughs> but doing chores around the house, you know, the the small things. Um, as soon as you feel you have to do them. It's not fun anymore. Nope. Won't go fast. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and it will take a lot of time and a true. lot of annoyance, probably. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. I'm actually doing some remodeling in my home as well. And it, it, it kind of turned out in, into a multi year project <laughs> uh, where we uh, try to do a bit of isolation, et cetera, and then uh, redecorate, et cetera, while we're on it. Um, but we have to do a lot of things. And, and I'm trying to do that next to 
my day job and the sharing knowledge stuff. <laughs> uh, and that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's it's setting priorities then, and then um, it's really easy to to drop the things you're not that passionate about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. So do, doing things around the house is, for me at least, uh, the first thing that I drop. Yeah, um, that's not always appreciated uh, by the <laughs> wife. Uh, but yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> no. no, but like, yeah, that's uh, uh, basically it, it might be more important than the other thing, but it's so much easier to do something that you're you're even thinking about when you're not doing it. Like, uh, like I would I would think all these things like public speaking, um, like this this is something you you are working and then in the car or whatever you get an idea like oh, I want to write something about this or do something or try this even out and. Um, yeah, you cannot get it out of your brain. And things that are on a list that just should finish at some point, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah, defined the, the some point. <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, and what, what, what does help, at least for me, is that for the public speaking, you kind of see that uh, after the after the, the winter, somewhere in, in, in February or something, then it, then it kind of starts again, the speaking season, mm-hmm. till somewhere around June, July, and then there's two months or so. Uh, not that many conferences happening. Yeah, true. Uh, and then again, there's a feels to be a speaking season, conference season again after the summer, uh, summer till the winter. Um, so that, that's, there's a bit of up and down times there. Uh, so I try to to balance that with public speaking, and then any months that there's no not too many conferences, then new stuff around the house, etc. That's actually a pretty decent approach. Yeah, maybe you should <laughs> try that. <laughs> I, I, I might. Um, Aaron, one of the things that, that you've been working on lately is um, Azure Landing Zones. And Azure Landing Zones is something that's come up quite a few times now um, with customers that, that not only I, but also Oscar uh, works with. Um, could you maybe start by explaining what is an Azure Landing Zone? It's not a resource we can create. No, it's actually a. Uh, you could actually, if you if you look at it purely from a technical technical perspective, you could say that it's actually a um, a combination of a lot of resources in Azure. I think the definition of Microsoft itself says something that a landing zone is is, is the output of a multi-subscription Azure environment mm-hmm. or something. Um, so the thing is that. If you want to do your thing on the Azure cloud, and especially when your organization is a bit bigger than just a, a small startup, then you need some structure in your Azure environment to to cope for scale, but also for security and governance and, and things like that. So what you can do then is, is create what the name kind of already says, a landing zone, a place for workloads, for applications, for systems to land within Azure. Um, so what you often see is that this landing zone thing is then being divided in two types of what we call landing zones. And landing zones are often referred to as subscriptions. So Microsoft dis- makes a distinction between two types of these landing zones. On the one side, we have the platform landing zones. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, we have the workload landing zones. And the platform landing zones they contain all the shared stuff that all the workloads kind of need to run. So that means there's something around connectivity in there. Uh, There could be connections towards data centers, on-premise data centers, for example. 
But it's also things like firewalling, so that every workload that wants to go out to the public internet, for example, uh, needs to go for, through the firewall. Um, so that's that, that's what we put in the platform side of things. And you often see that a platform team then manages that part of the platform. And then on the other side, we have the workload landing zones. And that is where the ap actual applications, uh, maybe custom built, but it could also be applications that you've bought, uh, are, are hosted in the Azure Cloud. Um, so each DevOps team, for example, each DevOps team might get their own set of a few subscriptions to run their workloads end-to-end. Uh, -end. Or you give a vendor a subscription and let them manage their application in your um, subscription. So it's this whole, it's this whole architecture, whole structure of subscriptions and management groups in Azure that allow you to, uh, to host your workloads in a scalable, manageable way. Yeah, I can, I can remember uh, a few years ago um, that the advice of also from coming from Microsoft, the advice is, uh, was uh, within a subscription um, organized in resource groups and organized really around uh, your whole team or your whole application in one single resource group also to to be able to do to start doing things like infrastructure as code, but you, what I see is now with with management groups popping up above subscriptions, the organization level is um, let's say a bit more mature um, to be able to say, well, this this application or this this indeed, indeed this team um, can manage that whole subscription, and within that you make tinier like uh, domains with your resource groups. Um, but there was really a shift there because I remember getting a comment like, why do you have so, so many subscriptions if you're basically doing one big application uh, for all your dev test environments? And I really wanted to, you know, security-wise, split them as, as far up as possible. <clears throat> yeah, but I, I, think, I think that uh, it also comes in wave, waves, right? So initially we had maybe even a subscription per environment mm -hmm. just to make sure that we could shield them off properly. Yeah. And then it kind of changed with role-based access control being introduced. But well, we can now shield it off decently yeah. within one subscription. So in, in 2010, we were contributor or not uh, in yeah. the portal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and then it went back to, uh, we don't need as many subscriptions since we can now decently fix this with um, role-based access control. But mm -hmm. now with the Azure landing zones, we're seeing an increase again in the number of subscriptions. But now because we're like you said, Aaron, uh, are separating, let's say, core elements from application elements. Yep, yeah. Yeah, you guys are totally right. That, that Microsoft really made a shift over the last few years in, in how they also see how you should organize um, your resources in the cloud around subscriptions and management groups. And it kind of makes sense because management group, groups actually don't exist for that long. Um, but you see that if, if you look in the cloud adoption framework, for example, the Microsoft change their approach to how you should do this uh, over time. Um, and it, I think it really makes sense to to move to a subscription per team model or subscription per mm -hmm. uh, per, uh, per vendor. And then what we often do is have each team have two subscriptions, one for their non-production workloads and one for the production workloads. So you can make a separation between how you assign their permissions, et cetera, on a subscription level. Um, so you can keep things around role-based access control a bit simple. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it also makes sense from the perspective of limitations that you have within Azure. A lot of limitations uh, are actually on the uh, subscription level. For example, the amount of uh, virtual machines and the virtual machine cores that you mm-hmm. can use is something that actually lives on the subscription level. So if you decide to host all your workloads in one subscription, uh, that might quite quickly become become an issue. Um, so there's multiple reasons why I think it's really relevant to uh, to use the subscriptions as a bit uh, of isolation for applications and role-based access control. Yeah, and like you said, um, I, I would even say this evolved over the years. So um, Microsoft vision on this also evolved into where we are right now. Um, but in short, this is the cloud becoming more and more mature, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a natural flow of how an, an ecosystem like this actually, yeah, matures. Yeah, yeah and it also it has to do with how, how the cloud matures, but I think it also has to do with how our way of working uh, and organizations uh, mature. Um, if you look at a traditional IT organization, uh, that's a totally different way of working, totally different operating model uh, than we see today where we have all these DevOps teams being end-to-end responsible for their applications. Um, that also requires a different organization within your Azure cloud. Yeah, but yeah, that- I think the responsibility, uh, especially like we do end-to-end responsibility, that means that you need control and then getting a full subscription for a team um, and being able to uh, manage that completely, that's the only way you can actually make them uh, um, fully responsible because otherwise you will have someone else needing to provide you some identities for things or, or yeah, creating resources. And, and we can do a lot of with, with infrastructure of code, of course, but still um, you should be able to, um, especially in some environments, also experiment and, and yeah, figure totally out how agree. stuff works without... Um, yeah, having to fight all kinds of policies that are mostly meant for the office tenant or whatever. Yeah, and that's yeah. of course where stuff like privileged identity, identity management also jumps in, and which is also a service I think has not been introduced very long ago. Um, but this is really where you see that this is this is being thought about. This is being executed in a way that actually supports companies in doing this better and. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we now also have a different way of actually buying Azure with the Microsoft Customer Agreement, which means that you can have a more streamlined uh, billing uh, solution that you don't get 17 bills because you have 17 Azure subscriptions, <laughs> but you just get it from one place and you can determine billing profiles and make sure that you uh, separate it that way. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're, they are really making progress on, on all these levels uh, and it makes... Uh, building an Azure landing zone, actually managing it uh, a lot simpler than it than it would have been uh, four or five years ago. Yeah, yep. true. And then I think Oscar already touched upon it two times. Uh, infrastructure as code is something that can really help with um, with managing that, right? Yeah, de- definitely. Um, that will obviously help both on the on the platform side that I just mentioned, the, the, the firewall and the connectivity to on-prem, et cetera. I mean, that is such an important part of your landing zone architecture. I mean, if you make a mistake there, uh, you change the firewall rule that, that might even impact everyone, then just a single change in the platform might bring down all the workloads that you also run within the landing zones. 
So to be able to prevent those type of things, you need to have a uh, particular process in place uh, around validation and and um, how you how you manage and change all your things in the platform. And infrastructure as code obviously is, is one of the um, uh, one of the main pillars there. Uh, but the same goes for workloads, right? You um, if if you go back to that separation between of in, in two subscriptions that we give a team two subscriptions, one for the non-production workload, one for the production workload. Then you could, for example, say that the only way to get something in production is through automated pipelines and through infrastructure as code, where you might say that in the non-production uh, subscription, you might give them a bit more permissions to play around a bit, or you might want to mm-hmm. give them a sandbox subscription on which they have full control. Um, but at least on the production one, you probably want to say that they can only make changes through pipelines and, and then also, obviously, through infrastructure as code. Yeah, since since that enables us to uh, get way more grasp on what's actually working. However, one of the um, one of the downsides I've heard of, for instance, Azure Bicep, is the fact that for some things you need to do, it needs a lot of um, uh, permissions. So, for instance, if you do something with resource locks, then the pipeline that's going to run your Bicep actually means of needs uh, user access rights management. Now that's something that is there a way that you uh, work around this so that you can validate that the bicep only gets the permissions it absolutely needs. Um, yeah, what we often do here is that that we um, obviously use a tool like Azure DevOps or, or GitHub Actions to do the deployments, um, and we use identities within those tools that we give the proper permissions on uh, the subscription level. So that from within these tools, using these connections, uh, teams can do whatever they need to do in um, in these subscriptions. Um, and we quite often make these uh, identities owner on the subscription that they need to deploy into, uh, which basically gives them all the permissions they need to at least make the changes within the subscription. Yeah, but then the question would be, from a, from a security perspective, how do you... Well, make sure yeah, that, that it trickles down because then yeah. you need to do uh, make sure those uh, GitHub actions or pipelines um, aren't uh, changed because mm-hmm. then you have your control there because basically it is a, an owner role. So if you can push code there, that will be executed. You can do everything. Yeah. So, yep. so it, it is a it's a, it is a hard problem. But what you said, Rick, like for instance, the the resource logs. I ran into that. Um, there was a there was a good option to have, especially with with stuff with state in it like database and stuff, you actually yeah. never want to just change or delete, especially not delete. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> without intention. Um, but I see much more use now with the management groups above it to um, uh, do stuff with uh, with policies and, and um, limit stuff like that instead of... Um, because the the resource lock was pretty intense. Like it's it's all or nothing. <laughs> yes, it's a no. A computer says no. Yeah. And and I th- I think a lot more uh, it can be done with with uh, more fine grained policies to protect yourself and basically set up those locks for things you actually never want to remove, but stuff like compute and stuff yeah uh, um, I I wouldn't use them there. No no I I agree on that one. Um, now we were talking about uh, infrastructure as code and quite literally, Aaron, you wrote the book on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's now three out of three autos, right? <laughs> I think so. 
Yeah, I think you had all of us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, yeah. Um, could you maybe for for people listening who don't know uh, the book, could you maybe in short explain what you try and um, explain in that book? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so together with together with uh, Eduard and Henry, uh, uh, last year the the book was published, and it's called uh, Azure Infrastructure as Code with ARM Templates and and Bicep. Um, so the book the book focuses on how to deliver your resources on Azure using infrastructure as code and then specifically uh, Bicep. Um, so we obviously explain how to write Bicep code and, and what, what you need to be able to do that. Uh, but the book also goes quite in depth on a few topics around uh, just Bicep. So we talk about infrastructure as code in general, but we also talk about how could you test your Bicep templates um, we also talk about, you already mentioned that for a bit, uh, policies, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. policies are a very important aspect of managing a, a large cloud environment. Uh, and you obviously also want to do your policy management through infrastructure as code. So we also uh, dedicated a chapter entirely on, on managing policies using Bicep. Uh, and we also go into things like, how do you then actually deploy these templates? So there's a chapter on Azure DevOps. There's a chapter on GitHub Actions in which we explain the concepts in those tools that you need to know about to build a proper uh, deployment pipeline. So what we try to do is not just write a book on what's the syntax of Bicep Mm -hmm. and use the Azure CLI to get it deployed, but to kind of, if you read it end-to-end, you should should be able to manage your Azure environment using Bicep um, in all aspects. I, th- I think it's much more important to get some experience or to, to for, for reading a book like that to know what are pitfalls because it's it's not about writing a new language or anything. Um, the concept is different. There's a really big difference in indeed what you also mentioned, like core uh, resources you roll out versus uh, something that's really close to the app you're building, like, like a compute instance of something where you want to deploy on. Um, those have different lifespans and, and it, it's really important to know how to split things up and organize things because things get out of hand fast. I've seen yeah. Bicep uh, stuff, like really starting with Bicep, starting with uh, let's create our first storage account, uh, two lines of code, till uh, JSON param files that were bigger than the actual ARM template that they used to use. So yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just seeing... You're seeing it, right? Yeah, but... <laughs> This this week I actually reviewed some bicep and yeah, <laughs> exactly what you said. <laughs> yeah, and that is that is true. We also go into uh, these concepts in the book. Not just uh, we both talk about management groups and and subscriptions and and the relation between them and how that how that relates to your Azure tenant and and, and resource groups and the whole organization structure within Azure. Uh, but we also talk about the organization structure uh, of your project of your bicep project. Uh, so that we also explain how to split up your templates um, and even how you could share your templates within the organization uh, for, for reuse across teams. Um, so we also talk about how to set up your uh, project itself to make sure that you can actually still manage that in, in a year or so mm-hmm. um, and to prevent uh, these large, uh, enormous files with Bicep uh, code. <laughs> I just I saw a meme yesterday where it said uh, start reading code and I thought 
which idiot created this and halfway through it gets <laughs> you're starting to recognize it <laughs> like, oh, that was oh. me <laughs> that's yeah. what i actually jumped on when you said when you still can manage it a year from now yeah um yeah. and but, maybe a year is even too far away you you i i've had that like i wrote something and then i didn't do it in a proper way and then like a month later i was what the was i thinking when i was <laughs> doing this yeah, you're so close to to a piece of code. Then, like you're trying to solve a specific problem, and you're not seeing what is uh, what you're creating, like in the big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you step back, but I've also seen uh, stuff where this happened a bit, and then um, it was a good initiative with bicep or with uh, with other uh, also with scripting and stuff. And it was like half done or almost done, and then no one trusted it because they made one mistake once. And then the thing is doomed. Like yep. it, it will just lay there and rot, and people will work around it or create something that's not using the templates that you created once. Like you really need to uh, look into it. Like I think it's it's more a magnet to uh, depth than normal code almost. Yeah, but especially if if not everybody on the team completely understands yeah, what it maybe does, that's right? It, right. Yeah, because most of the time you have that one or two team members that totally dive in and know everything and anything about uh, uh, such a language. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it could also be Pulumi or Terraform or, or Bicep. But if you have that one or two team members and then... Yeah, they, they get the tasks, right? Yeah. At some point, we, we will fall into that trap again. Yeah, totally agree. So talking about those different types of infrastructure as code, uh, I just touched on Pulumi and, and, and Terraform. Um I noticed that you might be writing an article on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was noticing that that after we, we published the book and and uh, that I was getting quite a few questions on when would I use uh, Bicep, when would I use Terraform, or why, or when would I move to, for example, Pulumi. Um, so I decided that it was time to uh, to write an article on on those three tools. Which I introduce them all, and then go through the pros and cons of, of all of them, uh, and, and trying to guide the reader into the direction of any of these tools based on well their current situation, basically. Um, so it's almost done. It's almost going to be published, and uh, I've also created a conference talk on the on the same on the same subject. Yeah, yep. I had some colleagues that uh, went to your talk last time in Rotterdam. It was, I think. Yeah, I th- that was that one was on uh, on Terraform specifically. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 creating a new talk uh, that that's almost finished. Uh, I haven't. Uh, it's it's completely new. I haven't given that one okay. yet. Yeah. Nice, Oscar. Is it that time? It is that time. It's time for a totally random question. Erin, what book changed your life? What book changed my life? Um, well, ch- changed my life might might be a big, bit of a, a too big a thing, but I I think a year ago or something, or, or maybe two, I read the book um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm-hmm. if I remember the title correctly. Um, and it goes into the seven habits, etc. And um, one of the first goes something around... I, I, I don't quite remember what, what the title of the habit was, but it's quite, it comes down to if you want to make a change for yourself in your life, then you mm-hmm. need to do that yourself 
it's not that anyone else is gonna gonna do that for you. Um, and for me, that tricked something that I've been. I've never really been thinking about where do I want to go in my career. Um, I kind of went from software developer to DevOps engineer uh, to mostly doing Azure infrastructure these days. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of happened organically. I kind of grew into different roles and 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 um, changed things I was doing. Um, but it's always been in the back of my head that I that, that a step on the horizon is probably that I want to, in years when I grow up, um, probably become some some sort of CTO role or, or something. Mm-hmm. Move a bit out of the, uh, the deep tech that I do today and move a bit more in the leadership uh, position. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I got from that one of the first chapters from the book was that I, if I want to actually do that, then I need to to step up and um, create my own plan around getting there. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I started writing down why do I want to move into the CTO role? What does the role actually even mean to me? And what do I think that I need to do over the next years? Um, what do I need to learn? What do I need to um, experience? To actually get there, um, yeah. so yeah, that's one of the books that, that changed something for me. Yeah, and so to to because you're your own like client in that question, right? Uh, no one's yep. doing that for you, so you need to be deliberate in your actions around it. Uh, yeah, because no one's gonna just throw it to you. Um, no, I mean, there's there's no one who's gonna say, say to me today like, oh, I have a CTO a CTO role. Do you want to do it? Um, that does not kind of well, happen. Now, now they might. Yeah, this is a, <laughs> a public announcement. <laughs> now, but now they, you also need to, even then, right? I was uh, sitting down with someone a while ago who was in that role. Um, and uh, I questioned him, like, um, what do you expect that this is? Like, write it down. And then I also asked the ones that gave him that role um, to, to sync up because that doesn't even uh, means the same thing in every environment yeah true uh, true so, so it's yeah. really specific for you it's like what are you looking for like in what kind of company are you looking for and yeah. what, what do you think your role is do you think you're managing people or you're managing tech or, uh, or are you envisioning uh, a future yeah yeah, yeah that, that, that's also what I encountered when I was routing I, I created a document in which I one of the things that I wrote down is what what kind of CTO do I want to be? And when I did a bit of research research on that, I indeed found that that role means very different things mm-hmm. in different organizations. Oh yes, I mean it means to- it's, it's something totally different in a in a startup than it is in a company of a hundred people or or, or five thousand people. Um, so I figured out what those types of CTOs are and which of the ones that I would prefer. Uh, and that helps me in in, a, in in to set out a path for the coming years uh, to figure out which type of roles should I be doing? What do I need to learn um, to actually get there? Well, in in that way, you could see this as life changing, since it actually steers you uh, in the direction that you wanna wanna go to, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's kind of the first time that I actually have a sort of a path in front of me if if it comes to to my career. Yeah, but that's awesome. I was totally expecting you to uh, say, well, the book I wrote changed my life because (laughs) I will never, ever, ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It is really... That's something that I wanted to ask you since, I mean, I have a blog too and and to be honest, 
I write a bit less now than I used to a couple of years ago, but still sometimes I write stuff and, and like we discussed on the show before, uh, it's even sometimes uh, your own external memory since you start Googling or binging something and then you yeah, find, yeah. oh, but, wait. And that's already a commitment, <laughs> but a book is something different. Yeah, but that's it, right? I mean, if you write a blog, you can edit and say, well, ha, sorry, made a mistake. But yeah. actually writing an article for a magazine or writing a book with your name on it, that's uh, something different. It's like software on a CD. <laughs> yeah, Dude. yeah, yeah. It, it, it definitely is, is something different. Uh, and uh, what I noticed is that when you, when I write a blog, then then it's about something that you've done. And you, you write it down and you, and you ship it. Um, whereas in in a book, at least for me, I really wanted to, wanted to be sure on every single detail that I wrote down. And in a book, you also go into even more detail. So that kind of goes double. Um, so it really takes a lot of time to uh, uh, to to write a book. Uh, and I was kind of happy that. That Henry asked me in the uh, in the Corona times when the when the pandemic uh, was at its full uh, to actually do it. I'm not I'm not sure if I would have done it, of or if I would do it now. Uh, I would definitely have to stop with something else if I would now wanted to start writing a book, uh, just because of the time that it takes. Yeah, and I can imagine um, it it needs to be it needs to be correct, right? I mean. If you write uh, fiction or something else, mm-hmm. that's your that's your vision and your idea that you're putting on paper, and that's I mean people might like it or people might not, but yeah, nobody can say hey it's something completely yeah. different. But nobody no. can say hey, there's something here that which isn't correct. No, that's true. And luckily, luckily there's there's a complete process around reading a book, and I think that one of the things that I liked is that we did it with uh, the three of us. Mm-hmm. So before a new chapter even went out to the editor, um, uh, one of the other guys had already reviewed uh, mm-hmm. the text and, and uh, checked a thing or two. And then uh, three times within the period that we were writing the book, uh, what we had until then went out to uh, around 10, 10 people, uh, 10 external people who would then also review the book, read the book, but also try out the code and the, and the snippets and setup that we had delivered uh, with it. So we, you then are kind of confident that that what you have written down actually makes sense and that people understand it and that it, that it all mm-hmm. works. Um, but just still, it, it it takes a lot more time to uh, uh, to get it right because I mean we can make a second edition, um, but what's what's printed is printed and it's not going to change. Yeah, indeed. True. Now I can imagine that it opens the door, the door to um, imposter syndrome. The, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm already getting nervous just listening to this. <laughs> I just wanted to propose that we should write a book on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> one pager. <laughs> um, I I also did have a lot of fun. Actually, I mean, it, it took a year and a half, I think, um, and it took a lot of time. I've I've been on the phone with with Henny and Edward uh, too many times, um, <laughs> but. It, it also was a uh, fun, fun learning uh, process mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, I was I, I was working on the Azure Cloud and with Bicep etc. quite a bit uh, before we started writing the book. But I've learned a ton of new things uh, just because I had to go into so much detail for the book. Um, that it also yes, it did take a lot of time, but it also was a very 
great experience. Well, to a lesser extent, I, I recognize that when doing a talk on a conference. I mean, and we've talked about that a couple of times as well, uh, event-driven <laughs> learning where you <laughs> actually write down an, a title and then when they pick you, you actually need to create that session. Yeah, I need to go one level <laughs> deeper, right? At least. Yeah, yeah but it, that's, that already helps you in, in going into scenarios that you normally maybe would skip since that's something that you need to cover on your session. But yeah, just like you said, man, on a book, that's going to be another level. But um, but yeah, I, th I think writing the book that you wa would want to read, like like I, you would do a conference session, like, ah, I would go to that one. Like, I, I always do it like that. Like, yeah. uh, and, and, and also the level that I would like, that means that it matches my level now and um, challenges me to go one step beyond. Yeah. Uh, that's the easiest way of learning for me. But I think commitment of a book is, uh, uh, especially with some other people, we're also doing that and waiting for you. Um, yeah, you cannot back out. Yeah, and I and I can imagine. I mean, twenty five. Okay, that sounds too. Let's say twenty <laughs> years ago. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's actually eighteen years ago. I I eighteen years ago I actually walked the floor of a call center where they were using software that I built. That was something that I. To this day, the, one of the best experiences that you can actually see. It's fun, right? A complete floor with your software open on all the screens. I mean, that's uh, not mine, but the team of uh, a lot of people that actually built it. Yeah. But the same is true, of course, with that book. Because in the end, you've got a physical thing in your hands that actually contains what you've been working on for a year and a half. And that must be an awesome feeling. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um the first time that I that I opened the box uh, coming from America with, with the the ten copies that were mm -hmm. for me, uh, and then and then go through just feel the book and go through the pages uh, of the thing that you wrote. Yeah, that's that's an that's an incredible feeling and and being able to to look yourself up uh, at Amazon.com yeah, <laughs> and then mean. actually find something. Um, yeah, that 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 it was really one of the things that I did want to do. Um, well, you can check off. Yeah, yeah, you can cross that off the list. Yeah, yep. And I'm, I'm always happy if I can find myself on Spotify now with this. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, I even open yeah. it up on the. I have a podcast. Oh yeah, where where could I find it? Oh look, it's on Spotify. It's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the other things that you uh, can cross off your list uh, anytime soon now, especially when this episode is out, or maybe even you've already done it when this episode is out, is you're going to run a full marathon in Rotterdam. Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, the, the 16th of uh, April. Wow. Yeah, it's going to happen. Was yeah. that something that you, that, was it on a bucket list? Was it a challenge? Was it challenging yourself? Uh, it, it was on a bucket list and it was also challenging challenging myself. I was uh, somewhere in, in October last year, I did, I did the half marathon of Amsterdam. Mm hmm and also the uh, the dam to dam loop in Amsterdam, mm -hmm. um, and I was I'd been training I had been training quite a bit for for those two, and I was like, if there's a point in my life that actually that I actually want to do a full one, then it should be now because I'm I'm kind of already trained and mm -hmm. it's easier to go from here to a full one than to to stop now and then I have to restart uh, another time. So um, on the day that I came home from one of those events. Uh, I actually signed up for the full marathon, and, uh, and well, they, they you kind of have to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's the best moment, right after something, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, when you're still it. on that runner's high, you go, okay, yeah. I'm going to go for the yeah, full marathon. Yeah, do it yeah. an hour before you start running, it's like, no. No, no, no. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, yeah. that's that's actually cool. Um, and that I mean, I've heard sometimes or somewhere that if you can run, and I think it's 14 or 18 kilometers, if you can do that, and you run uh, based on um, uh, on your heart rate, you you can also finish that marathon. Is that something that you recognize yep. or? I'm actually I'm actually kind of short of uh, following that that approach. There's there's indeed this guy who wrote a book on the fact that mm-hmm. if you if you do a training for a marathon, you don't have to do all these very long runs like 30 uh, 35 kilometers that you would do in normal uh, training schemas. He says that if you run four times a week um, and do that consistently. And especially do that on, on the heart rate and the pace that you also want to do that during the marathon, mm-hmm. um, then your, your body will get used to that pace. And although the longest training that you have done in your preparation is then only 14 kilometers, your body will be have trained enough to be able to do a, a full marathon. Um, but I must, I must admit that I find it also a bit scary mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because you've only trained 14 and then go to 42 is, is, is quite, a be- quite a leap. It's three times as much. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. so I must admit that I've, I've, that's what I mean. I sort of follow the approach uh, because I, I do believe in it and I simply don't have time to go with the full full runs, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did do a few, few half marathons and a 30-kilometer run uh, in in the past a few months, um, because I just wanted to feel what it's like to do a longer run. Um, hmm. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge still, um, uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm really looking really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think uh, that, that w- will be a challenge for almost everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish you a lot of luck doing that. Um, I'm hoping to uh, sign up at some point because. My wife made me uh, run, and <laughs> now I'm doing that sometimes. I'm sometimes enjoy it. But she chased you, and then you had to run. Yeah, or? no, no, it's not like that. Like uh, no, no, no. But uh, uh, I like I make her feel proud a bit if I run. So it's good for me also to do something for my health after sitting all day. True. Um, so I'm doing that a bit. But I, I was thinking to sign up for a ten first somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. You got to start somewhere. Like and, uh, and again. What we talked about in the beginning, I think the same goes for uh, for running, and especially if you yeah, want yeah. to run a marathon, you need to also maybe you need a bit to be a bit crazy, but you also need to have passion for it. Yeah, you need. I think you, need, you really need to like to go out. I mean, you have to go out in the rain. Uh, it, I've even done a few runs uh, when it was snowing, uh, simply because you have to go out and do mm-hmm. the training. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, deliberate, and uh, um, yeah, if you're having fun. Um, but but in this also, Aaron, like if it doesn't work or you cannot finish it or whatever, like this is the first attempt. And as we know with build pipelines, uh, <laughs> there's no problem in just uh, persisting. <laughs> nice, true, true. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I kind of have, have have another problem because the uh, and you guys probably know the day after um, or as. as the two days after the MVP um, summit will be organized again in America. Um, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to run a marathon. And then the next day I'm going to be on a plane for like 10 hours. Um, so I'm not really looking forward <laughs> to, to that one. That's really, a nice long flight also indeed. Yeah. I wonder what my body's going to think of sitting in a chair for eight hours after doing a marathon. But, yeah. 
I'm going we'll to see. wish you a lot of luck. Um, <laughs> is there anything that you would like to get back to or that you would like to add or, or maybe even something we haven't discussed that we really need to right now? Um, no, not really. I think we have uh, covered some nice uh, things here. Well, I think so too. So yeah. thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, we had a lot of fun and um, good luck with your marathon. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Better Talks, the podcast. We publish a new episode every two weeks. You can find us on all the major streaming platforms like Spotify and iTunes. See you next time. Bye.